uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll start in verse 20. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So we see this progression in these scriptures. Christ is risen from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death came through Adam. We are made alive through Christ. And he says each in his own order, and he talks through the progression of the resurrection, which we've covered in previous studies, and go, why are you telling us this? Why are you telling us this? He says in verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Okay. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Has the thought ever crossed your mind that God would be made subject to Jesus at the end? That God would be put under Jesus? Have you ever gone, oh, yeah, I wonder if that's going to happen? Like, it's just not a thought that ever crossed my mind. I said, Paul, why... Why are you saying this? Why are you writing this? Why are you bringing this up? When we read the Bible, we see that the Son has always been subject to the Father. Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. We know that he has a will of his own because he had, he, he, in the garden, certainly in his humanity, said, not my will, but yours. He is, he is, he has a will separate from the Father, and he has a will conjoined with the Father. And as a man, he always put his will under him. And in the Spirit, he always puts his will under the Father's. We never think that. We never go, oh, what, you know, what is, what's going on here? But Paul makes a point to say God will not be made subject to Jesus. And I said, huh, why? I never thought that or imagined it, so why is Paul making this point? And I think it's because his audience must have been imagining it. So for the Jews, God was God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. God was one, and now they have God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the confusion for them as they're hearing that Jesus is the Son of God, which they struggled with to begin with, right? That was stumbling for them. Not only is the Son of God, but he is God. How difficult for them to accept that. And so Paul, as he's speaking about, you know, things being put under him, he says, 
No, no, no. God is still one. God is still one. There's no change here. For many of them, the Messiah, the Christ, was just going to be a man. A man of unusual power that could bring the kingdom back to them. And we see that in the Gospels, and that is a belief that exists to this day. Simply that Israel is going to be restored, that the temple is going to be rebuilt, and that all, they're going to be uh, protected from all of their enemies when the Messiah comes. They, they thought this was an earthly political kingdom. And in the end, we see that for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom that God establishes, but that's not what Jesus first brought. He brought something different to them, and they missed it, right? Jesus was not taking over. He was not taking over from God. They remained one, and that was really important for them to understand that. It, it could not have been an easy concept for them. Jesus, Son of God, ugh, we're struggling with that. Jesus, God, ugh, we're struggling even more with that. This could not have been an easy concept. It's not an easy concept for us. The Trinity, right, is still not an easy concept for us at times. And it was something that produced incredible problems for the early church, incredible heresies within the early church. So Paul brings this up, one, to help the Jewish believers, but how about the Gentile audience? What did they see in the gods? Continual strife, struggling, and attempts to usurp the power of whoever was in the lead at the time. This is how the gods operated, right? So if we go into the Greek mythology, and we won't spend a ton of time here, but I'll just run through some stuff for you. For them, things started with a spontaneous generation of four beings. Chaos, Tartarus, Gaia, and Eros. They each have children, but it seems to be offspring from themselves, not from a union with the other gods. They just kind of have these children. One of Gaia's offsprings, Gaia is identified as the earth. One of her offsprings is Uranus, the sky. And they together produce the Titans, one of which is Kronos. So the first leader is Uranus, and he has children with Gaia, and one of those children is Kronos. But Uranus hates his children. And he doesn't want them to see light, so he buries them deep in the earth. And Gaia is dismayed at this, so she gives Kronos a sickle, which he uses to emasculate Uranus. It's fun stuff going on here. And then Kronos has children, and he assumes control at that point. Kronos assumes control. So we got Uranus first, Kronos comes, and he takes control. Then Kronos has children with Gaia. Notice all of the offspring come from the earth. There is no heavenly influence. The things that come from the earth are earthly. The things which come from God are godly. No influence from heaven. All of these offspring. And Kronos doesn't want to lose power to any of his children, so each time one is born, he eats them. I know what I'll do. My kids misbehave. I'm just going to eat them, and that'll be done with it. I never have to worry about them taking over. This is Kronos' practice with his children. So Gai, and she gives Kronos a rock dressed in baby clothes to eat, and I mean, what kind of God doesn't recognize this is not a baby, right? It's just a rock. 
Oh, great. I got rid of another one, right? He just gobbles it down. He doesn't know. And a war starts called the Titanomachy. The Titanum. I, I can't pronounce it right. I can't. I don't know how, like, professional wrestling hasn't used that one as one of their bills, right? The Titanomachy. Steel cage. Um, and it, maybe it has. I just haven't seen it. But so the Titanomachy starts, and Zeus comes out on top. Right? So we've got Zeus. Each, they're all fighting for position. They're all trying to accede. They're all trying to usurp from one another. And so Zeus marries his first wife, Metis, but the fates say she's going to have a son that will overthrow him. Uh, so guess what Zeus does? He swallows her. Just wanted to be like dad. This is how we deal with our problems, right? We see, the, uh, we see the ghosts from the past living on, that we do the same things our parents did. He swallows her. Incidentally, Metis is pregnant with Athena at the time, the goddess of wisdom, and she eventually gets born out of Zeus's forehead. He has this incredible headache, and she comes stepping out of his forehead. Eventually, I would say Zeus is usurped by wisdom, and people just stop believing in him, right? So the list goes on. One God replaces another. One God replaces another. So what might the Gentiles in the audience believe? We got a new God. We got a new God, and he's going to take over for this old God, right? Jesus would displace God because that's what the gods do. That's how things happen. That's, where, that's how they act. And I'm sure heresies and false doctrines flowed from that. They did. Martian of Sinope, also uh, weeks ago we talked about where Pontus and Bithynia were along the southern coast of the Black Sea. So now you know where this guy is from. If you can picture the Black Sea, the first big peninsula that comes out on the southern border of that, the tip of that is Sinope, and that's where this guy is from. And he, what he taught, he lived from 85 A.D. to 160 A.D., so very on in the, early on in the history of the church. And what he taught was that the God of the Old Testament was not the same as the God of the New Testament. This God, the God of the Old Testament was indeed a God, but now there was a better God, and that God was now under the new God, the new God revealed in Jesus. He said that the Old Testament scriptures were not authoritative for Christians, and that there was a new and better God taking over. And you'll, you'll see people that will say things like that today. The Gentile audience expected succession, succession, succession. And it's not what happens with God and Jesus. And Paul says, let me make this clear. He himself, God, will not be subject to Jesus. He will be all in all as he always is and as he always will be. God will be all in all. You see it in um, Ephesians uh, 1.22. It says, all things are under his feet. He's the head of the church, his body, that God has made Jesus this. You see it in Psalm 8. Let's turn to Psalm 8. We'll read that together. It's a, one of the short psalms.
Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The writer mentions man and the son of man, and we know the son of man is a, is, a, is a name for Jesus. And he says, all things have been placed under your feet, under his feet, but they're placed by another. It's not a position that we take on our own. They're placed by God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not our own effort that we do this by. We see the same thing in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And this is one of the great messianic references. And Jesus quotes it in Matthew 22 uh, in uh, 41 through 46. He asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Christ? And they say the son of David, of course. Everybody knows that. And he says, how then does he call him Lord? And they have no answer. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And God, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus presents everything to God, under God, him in whom all things are. You hear people today echoing this thought of different gods. There's the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament, right? They can't be the same because Jesus is so loving and giving and he says peace and let's get along and we're all all right. But they don't acknowledge what he actually teaches. Or you have people saying God's dead. Science and technology have taken over, right? Now we know everything. So we know where the goats give birth. We know, uh, we know what makes thunder. So we got it all down. So science and technology take over. Same, same fate as Zeus. Maybe God should have just swallowed us and saved himself the trouble, right? Luckily for us, God says this about himself in Malachi 3. For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Rick mentioned the, the burning bush you know, Moses comes upon the burning bush, and one of my favorite things about that story is God takes this bush and he uses it to speak to Moses, and it's not consumed, and God does the same thing with us. He takes us and he uses us to speak to others. He puts us on fire. He puts his fire in us, but he doesn't consume us. He doesn't do it to destroy us. 
He does it to fill us up with his presence. We are not consumed. That's not how God deals with his children. He puts his fire, he puts his light in them, but he doesn't consume them. We're so scared of that sometimes. God's just going to like use me up and throw me to the side, right? If I, if I full, uh, wholeheartedly serve him, I'm just going to get squeezed out like a toothpaste tube and tossed away. But more than what we would be on our own. Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27 says, I said, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. And this, this is all to say, these scriptures are to, are to emphasize the enduring nature of God, right? One, I am, I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. So the benefit of God not changing, we're not consumed. Psalm 102, 24 through 27, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are, your, are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. His perfection and his wholeness and his enduring nature is an incredible blessing to us. In James 1.17, it says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All the good things come from God because he doesn't change. He continually gives us good things. He continually draws us with cords of human kindness. He continually works to put us in a position to understand who he is. The, the gods that were defeated in the Greek mythology, there's, there's kind of two separate myths for where they go. One says they go to Tartarus, right, which is a, a pit, one of the four original creations was a pit. And one says they go there. Another one says they go to an island paradise. It's two divergent tales. And they all become friends when they go to the island paradise, right? The ones that we're fighting, everybody's happy, everybody's good. God's not looking for an exit strategy, right? God's not looking like for a retirement plan. And you can say, okay, I'm going to turn this over to Jesus now. And I'm going to walk away. I want to go to the nice island and be friends with everybody. I'm kind of tired of this. His heart was to put up with all of our rebellion. And he's not going to walk away. But because he loves us and wants us to be united to him again, God always stays in the picture. There is no one like God. He is not looking to distance himself from you. And he stays the same. And there are hundreds of scriptures that talk about how God stays the same. I chose the scripture from James specifically from among the many that talk about his unchanging nature for a reason. In that Greek mythology, Uranus hid his children so they couldn't see light. If any of you remember the myth of Prometheus, what is he punished for? What does he give man? fire 
Thank you, John. He gives man fire. God's wanted to keep light from the from people. When we go back to the beginning of the record of history that God has given us in the Bible, we find the earth formless and empty and darkness hovering over the water. What is the first thing we hear God speak? Let there be light. What, the, what their gods, what the false gods were always trying to do was keep light from man. And God, the true God, from the very existence, the father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow, before he even brings man into existence, he makes sure there's light for him. Day one. Light. He doesn't even create man until day... Oh, actually, he doesn't create the sun and the moon and the stars until day four. So there's light prior to the natural light that we see, that we, we call natural light. There's light prior to that. God is so concerned that we would have light, and he doesn't withhold it from us at all. New topic for you to study. Follow light through the Bible. Follow light through the Bible. I'll give you a little taste today. Uh, Just talked about Moses in the burning bush. God appears to him in fire, and the fire of God, the light fire, but it's not of anything that would be good in us. It's only to eradicate the bad. It's only to bring us into a greater knowledge of him. Exodus 10, the ninth plague as the Israelites were, uh, as God wanted to bring them out of Egypt. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And it says, this was a darkness over the land of Egypt for three days that could be felt. That was the extent of the darkness. you, You could feel it on you. That's how deep it was, the absence of light for them, because he was trying to prove a point of who he was. And it says, in the homes of the Israelites, light could be found. Verse 13, he gave a pillar of fire at night to give them light. Second Samuel 22, verse 29, you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Does God do that for you? Does he enlighten your darkness? When you're in it, when you're stuck in it, does he show you the way? Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's a tendency out there to do that, right? To call darkness light. To say that there are things out here that are, these are good and these are what we should go for. These are what we should be after. God says, I want to turn your eyes away from worthless things. I want you to stop chasing what's not true light because I have light for you. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says Satan masquerades as an angel of light trying to get us to call darkness light, trying to get us to, to follow after him. <clears throat> we saw the Greek gods trying to withhold things, and that's Satan's big lie. God's trying to withhold things from you. There is good that you should have, but God is trying to keep it from you. 
So we go off chasing shiny things. What do, what do shiny things do? They reflect light. They're not real light. Shiny things just reflect light. It's all they have in them. And we chase them. What's the first thing God gives man? It could be. And what I'm thinking is breath. Did you say breath of life? Give that girl a prize. Breath. First thing he gives man, right? <clears throat> breath. We can't do without it. We can't do without breath. Did you know you can't will yourself to stop breathing entirely? You could hold your breath long enough to pass out, and then your body would go, now that that dummy's unconscious, we can stop breathing again, right? God designed you that way. The great system God created in you says, I'm not going to let you stop breathing. So I want you to think about light and breath. I want you to think, consider, and realize at your worst, worst, worst time, that you are breathing, and God gave you that. At your worst, worst, worst time, there's light. And the God who never changes and loves you gave them both to you, breath and life. And I want you to remember at your best, best, best time that God gave you breath and that God gave you light, and it's all from him, and he never changes, and it is a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. How amazing is light? In the vast darkness of space, we can see light from a star that's not miles away, but billions of light years away. So a light year is 5.8 trillion miles. Let's just round it up to 6 trillion argument's sake. I think once you get to 5.86 trillion, that's fine. The most distant star that can be seen with the naked eye is 4,000 light years away. So that's 4,000 times 5.8 trillion. That's a lot of zeros. It's like something to the power of something. It's a lot. So with just with your eye, you can see and the vast majority of space, there's nothing. It's darkness. Light is so powerful that you can see it from that far away. That's what God made for us. That's pretty cool, but let's go cooler. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you're new to the Bible, Jesus is the Word of God. So it's speaking of him there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or can't overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that which gives light to every man coming into the world. So the light from the stars is pretty amazing. The distance it can travel is kind of overwhelming. But we lost the true light, and God gave it back to us in the person of his Son. Not only would he bring that life and light to us, but he would go on to say what? You, you are the light of the world. Not only am I bringing this to you, but I'm making you into something that the world cannot do without. So much further than you could see yourself going. I am making you into who I am. He is not withholding true light and true life from you. He gave himself up to you to deliver it to you. You know, light travels 186,000 miles per second. How quickly can God reach you in your darkness? How quickly can he get to you? How available is he to you? If natural light can travel that fast, how fast is God? Instant. Wherever your darkness is, whatever darkness you may be in, he is not far from you, as Paul said. Instant. I'm breathing. I can see the light. God is here. And he is always with me. And he does not change. We're not going to go there, but write down Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Read that later as another example of the light. We are going to finish up in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, this is Jesus, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. 
you also, as living stones, again, him making us into himself, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. God appointed has appointed everybody to this word. This can, this can refer to the Jews who have not accepted Christ, but it can refer to everybody. We've all been appointed, and God wants to give something to us, and we reject it, and we're disobedient. And he says, but you, you have, who have accepted God's word, are a chosen generation, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who knew this better than Peter? That you could... You could be one thing and become something else, right? If you drew a line down the middle of the page, you could say, here's darkness and here's light. Under darkness, you're not a people. Under darkness, you're not a priesthood. Under darkness, you're not chosen. In the light, you are chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people for whom there is enough mercy to overcome all of your mistakes. Peter certainly knew. Peter, mistakes before he met Jesus, mistakes while he walked with Jesus, mistakes after Jesus was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Peter, he knew the light God had, and he knew the mercy that couldn't be taken away. He knew the light it describes it here as marvelous light. The light that God had called him into was marvelous enough to overcome all of it. And he had mercy that couldn't be taken away. So his first letter is where we're going next Sunday to start our studies. Read ahead and be blessed. And we'll have the musicians come up. We're going to take communion together today. God is unchanging, and he has given us true light. Don't settle for reflections. Don't settle for stuff that won't satisfy and grace. Maybe somebody could grab them. Thank you, honey. Don't settle for less.